Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, a podcast where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find three therapists discussing cutting-edge research articles explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Welcome back to The Evidence-Based Therapist. We're here in the studio today with the three of us, Melissa, Caleb, and Bridger, and we're excited to review a totally new article for you guys, um, and it's a good one, but mm-hmm. I feel like we say that at the beginning of every episode. We did choose them. <laughs> we yeah. Did. yeah, I know. So, yeah. Selection bias. Yeah. So before we get into a super fun article whose uh, beginning title is Something Wicked This Way Comes, there's a little teaser for you. A little Shakespeare? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Robert Bradbury? Maybe. Ooh, um, so before we get into that fun, we want to let you guys know that you can connect with us and be a part of our community through Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter and find uh, several different tiers of membership and ways of connecting with us. And each different tier gets gets you access to different resources. Uh, there's stickers that will get sent to you. <laughs> we got t-shirts coming yeah, out. I know. We got t-shirts. t-shirts. We're uh, investigating all kinds of fun stuff that uh, you guys could get for being a supporting member. Um, but more than anything, Thing. It also gives you access to communicate with us and ask questions and just be part of our community because our favorite thing ever is talking to therapists yes. um, about your cases and uh, you look, looking at uh, consulting with you. Um, so anyway, go to patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter and join us there. The other thing we want to let you guys know about is that when we're not behind microphones, mm-hmm. we are standing in front of rooms with microphones. <laughs> yes, that is true. A lot of microphones. <laughs> There's in our a life. lot of microphones huh. in our huh. life, um, and you know, part of that is because we love to teach. And so, uh, at Beyond Healing, we have created some trainings that are specific to us. And one of them is our model of case conceptualization mm-hmm. called somatic integration and processing. And we are profoundly proud. Um, to offer this training, uh, somatic integration and processing training one is a three day training, which is a deep dive into the theories that we believe are the most important to give you a good foundation of case conceptualization that is applicable for whatever modality of therapy you are using, whether you're an EMDR therapist, a CBT therapist, an experiential somatic doesn't matter. SIP is there to support you in your case conceptualization because we believe that good therapists are good case conceptualizers. Is that a word? It is now. It okay. should be. <laughs> conceptualizers. Yes. And as, Trademarks. This, as this is being recorded, we are on the Eve Eve. Oh, that's true. Of a our virtual second training. offering. Yeah, yeah. So we, we do these as live trainings for three days. Uh, we also do them as virtual trainings. So if you want more information about that case conceptualization training and ways to connect with us um, through trainings, you can find that on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com and look at the trainings tab and you'll see several different trainings that we offer. We have a few different ones and we'll talk about more of those later, but I could talk about trainings all night if you let me. So on to the episode, because that's why you guys are here. Here we go. Yeah. So today we've chosen an article that is from an area of our field that's a little bit, um, I don't know. Tempestuous. Under, okay. <laughs> I some, was going to say underrepresented. Would, yeah. And some would yeah. even argue that it's not a part of our field. Oh, yeah. As or that it shouldn't counselors, be. Yeah. Which is yeah. interesting. Theoretically yeah. a part of it. Clinically, not a part right. of it. Yeah, which so, we are here to quibble with. We, we are. We're going to argue much. about it all night long. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So this comes from psychoanalytic psychology. Mm -hmm. Heck yeah. Yeah. And this is an area where both of you guys have read pretty deeply as your former professor. The references are all over your papers. (laughs) (laughs) And none of the others in your cohort were referencing psychoanalytic theory. That makes me so happy. (laughs) Yeah. And also so sad. Also, yeah, just to have a professor that notices that is a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. That's where I felt seen. Yeah. yeah, You mean I noticed that you two were different? Yeah. Yeah. And that you just saw the names of psychoanalytic <laughs> writers and you're like, huh. you knew. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have learned a lot from both of you about psychoanalytic theory and I'm excited to learn even more. And so my job tonight is to ask the question, okay, say, say more about what you mean. What does that word mean? Mm. Say more about that. Because there's yeah. going to be a lot of concepts, words, ideas that are new to a lot of listeners because if you haven't spent a lot of time reading um, about psychoanalytic theory it kind of has a language unto itself very much so yeah Yeah. so we want to make sure that we carry the listener along with uh, that new language and they're very uh, a lot of psychoanalytic authors and researchers are pretty unapologetic Mm -hmm. with their lexicon and they kind of uh just run with it they They just own their words the way they want to yeah and they might introduce a new word that they coined in the introduction and then use that throughout the paper right and just you gotta keep up yeah yeah, because they just, told you what it meant in the abstract, and you better been, been paying attention. That's right. You should take notes if you need to, because uh-huh. we're going to go fast. Yeah. 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 yeah, they're Freudianites. Yes, that's and right. <laughs> Freud did the exact same thing. Made a lot of words. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. yeah. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of the article, can we kind of start with an overview of psychoanalytic thought? Yeah. Like, where, yeah. Well, where and do I we want to do that, with that? I want to do that zooming in to a conversation that the three of us have been having Mm -hmm. on, you know, Mal kind of gave reference to this before, but we do a lot of trainings. And so that means we're also thinking about a lot of things all the time and uh, synthesizing massive amounts of literature, very differing uh, perspectives in the field. And something that uh, just uh, recently we've kind of been throwing out is the overlap of anthropology, uh, self-psychology or intrapsychic yeah. psychology. Ego psychology. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is where this article kind of comes from. But then also uh, neurobiology. So those mm-hmm. three kind of converging and what role shame plays in that. And that mm-hmm. in my doctoral program is something I focused my first semester on is shame and interpersonal neurobiology. And so Caleb and I nerded out pretty hard on the reference list with that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's where this came from. That's so, right. mm-hmm. yeah. And, and shame is such like a... Uh, just a massive concept. Yes. And it seems to be like a, a haunting yes. around every corner. Yes. And it's also something that the field of psychotherapeutics has a lot of opinions about, but no sure thing. Even the definition of the word. Even the definition of the word, let alone what to do with it clinically. However, psychoanalysis has been dealing with shame for a really long time Mm -hmm. um, since its origins. Well, so before we kind of get into that, I think, you know, one thing that feels true is that there has been more attention paid to the, the issue of shame in therapy Mm -hmm. lately. There's been a lot more research, a lot more discussion, and it all kind of has this tenor of, Hey, 
don't forget about the shame because it's <laughs> yeah. super important. <laughs> yes. Because every client has it. Yes, because every, every human, human has yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of our clients are human. Um, yeah. <laughs> question mark. <laughs> um, I do hang out with... Anyway. So... <laughs> <laughs> So I think that uh, for for those of us that are therapists and LPCs and LCSWs, we're we're hearing more and more about the role that shame plays and its relationship with trauma and how where there is one, there's almost always the other. So I feel like there's kind of this good foundation and primer of, okay, we know that this issue is probably more important than we were originally taught, say, in grad school. And the research keeps pointing to that shame is one of the predictive factors in poor outcomes in therapy. That, you know, the higher the level of shame is, uh, the more suicidality we have, uh, mm-hmm. the more problematic barriers we experience in therapy, whether we call them resistance or something else. Mm. Um, so there's just a lot of factors around shame. And we know that it's important, but I think that, you know, reading this article and listening to you guys talk, there's some nuance around why and what does that actually mean Mm -hmm. that I think um, you guys can talk about and kind of shed some light on both from the psychoanalytic perspective, but then also the neuroscientific perspective. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because even like um, Pongsep, I'm thinking, his, he actually places shame as a tertiary Mm -hmm. construct yes which for the listener tertiary is um what yakponcep refers to the neocortex very simply that's a generalization but yeah very cognitive process so it's it's the thinking it's very explicit you're you can you form it into language Mm -hmm. and it's uh logical yeah which is so surprising that it comes from punksep because uh, many other uh, neuroscientists place shame originating in the primary and secondary processes, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. in the brainstem and the mammalian brain. Yeah. Which is very interesting that Ponksep then says it's a tertiary process, which I think that's where he gets into the self-reference, mm-hmm. like the self-referential qualities of shame, where you're actually considering who you are in the eyes of someone else. That's a tertiary process. Yeah. But even still. Which yeah. we're, we'll probably talk about this a little bit more, but I think that in the literature of shame and even as i think about how i have come into contact with shame in the clinical <clears throat> process like i i want to like or i have engaged it and i've read about shame in the way of like being able to talk about it explicitly mm-hmm. and it's very like formed in language yeah but in the way that bromberg talks about it in the article that we'll get into in a second there's this deep acknowledgement that shame is one of those primary secondary processes and then it's more of a structural yes experience i love that than it is a cognitive experience and what do you mean by a structural experience that the experience of shame is shaping the brain mm-hmm. rather than um shame being a part of the brain or like a a word that is housed in the brain it is going to decide how the neurosequential firing of the brain flows yes right does that make sense i think so if you can say more because the the idea of there being internalized constructs that are not necessarily part of us but are shapers of us i feel Mm. like there's a lot of nuance there that maybe is kind of hard to to really understand what that means. Yeah. And I think this is a perfect segue into what Brownberg talks uh-huh. about with his mm-hmm. his idea of self-states. Mm-hmm. 
So Bromberg comes from a part of psychoanalysis that is um, sort of like a newer wave of psychoanalysis. You have like Freud and his structure of the id, ego, superego, classic theory, everyone's heard of it. Yeah. Um, Then out of that, you kind of had some object relations theorists. Um, Those are people who had the ideas of like introjects and how people relate to internal models of the other. Yeah. So like you would have a internalized representation of your mother yeah. that then goes throughout your life filtering and shaping how you see other, other figures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That other quote unquote mm-hmm. objects. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then you have more of like a self-psychology wave mm-hmm. that has just sort of more of like an emphasis, and this is going to be a total overgeneralization, but just it, it breaks down the rigidity of the id, ego, superego into more just a fluid self yes mm-hmm. that is kind of interacting and it has all these different parts and it's not yes. as conflicting um and out of that comes more bromberg's work bromberg's work which is focused on the role self states play yes so self states he works really closely with alan shore who's a neuro neuroscientist um he works a lot in affective uh, neurobiology and basically what a self-state is are you can think of like the affective circuitry so kind of like what we referenced in the last one the seven trees yeah that kind of link up through your brain a self-state is how those trees are organized to interact so very individualized have, yeah so i can have a self-state that is like i'm going to use very metaphorical language but one that i use with clients all the time like a joker self-state, mm-hmm. which is both rage-filled and playful. Mm-hmm. And in that way, like if that self-state is kind of in like in control, this is like hearkening back to when we talked about um, Vanderhart mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. structural Steel. dissociation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Ego state. Yeah, Same ego right. state yeah. work. Um, if that state of being, I'm engaged in that, then that's going to filter how I am engaging the world. Yeah. Well, and also it shows how I am experiencing my felt sense Mm -hmm. in my body of myself at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, that activation of the self state of the Joker, for instance, that has that flavor of rage and that flavor of play that has a very specific, um, internalized state and sense that Mm -hmm. somebody can, tap into and recognize um most ego states and therefore self states people recognize them by the way that they feel physiologically Mm. and that's because of those affective circuits firing in a specific pattern that produces um changes physiological changes differences in how energy feels in my body how much energy i feel in my body um, where tension is where relaxation is all of that is very specific to that ego state or self state. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you kind of brought in that, that detail. One of the things that I always came... bring the somatics. Yes. Always. Yeah. Cause <laughs> yeah. Cause your body is taking yeah. so much energy right. and then these like self states start in mm-hmm. the deepest recesses or sanctums of your brain yes. right. and, and how you make sense of the experiences that you're having is based on what self-state is activated in the 
deeper parts of your brain. Well, and I think something that Bromberg talks about a lot, you know what we didn't do? We didn't say the name of the article yet. (laughs) We got so excited. Thanks for sticking with us. I know. We got so excited about what we were talking about. It's a 14-minute intro. Yeah, that we forgot to tell you what we're talking about. So before I say what I'm going to say, I'm going to tell you what we're talking about. So this article is called Something Wicked This Way Comes, Trauma, Dissociation, and Conflict. The space where psychoanalysis, cognitive science, and neuroscience overlap. Yes, and yeah. this, and I love that the title of the article shows what um, psychoanalysis so often does, which is infusing neuroscience, self psychology, and poetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, that something wicked this way comes is Shakespearean mm-hmm. Macbeth mm-hmm. quote. It is Macbeth. Yes, and uh, psychoanalysts Macbeth. do that all the time. Yes, yeah, they find so much of their roots in the language of the poetry poets, which yeah. i love that yeah. yeah yeah the art yeah so the thing that brought me back to the name of the article is that idea of dissociation but when you're talking about self-states and i'm thinking about the specific activation patterns and somatic experience that's happening physiologically it's the inability to tolerate the way a self-state feels like actually feels in the body mm-hmm. that leads that system that organism to reject and dissociate away that self-state and that's how we get fractures in the personality that's right it's not it's not the analysis that tertiary you know process of deciding that that is shameful that says and therefore i should remove this from my awareness it happens way before then when the organism says, whatever I'm feeling feels dangerous and intolerable to me, mm-hmm. and I need to stop feeling it, and therefore I'm going to dissociate it out of my awareness so that I no longer have to feel the way that I'm feeling physiologically. Because I think sometimes as therapists we get um, caught up in what is happening in those tertiary processes and forget that in trauma and dissociation, those are early, early processes And so all of the reaction patterns are usually about what it actually felt like physiologically rather than what conclusion did I come to about it that made it intolerable to the person. Yeah. And, and you're, Melissa, you're illuminating such a beautiful, like, um, dissonance in the kind of how we even talk and engage with the idea of shame. Yeah. Because sometimes, I mean, I feel like the majority of people at this point in the modern world have the idea of like, shame is I am bad. I Not am bad. What I did is bad. Yeah. And guilt is I did bad. Yeah. And you want guilt. You don't mm-hmm. want shame. Mm-hmm. But I mean, typically the next question is, okay, you, oh man, you feel, you feel bad. Like you are bad. But like, why? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then we'll get caught in the cognitive right. yeah. processes. And then there's like no resolution. Right. But mm-hmm. in the in the idea, and this is I want to come, I want to kind of ground us in this very like fundamental claim of Bromberg's, mm-hmm. where he says, for humans, yes. the highest survival priority is survival as a self, as a self, not as a biological entity, yes, but as a self. And this is why I sorry, this is I'm just soapbox moment. One second, this is why I think 
metapsychological models such as SIP, such as our model, is mm-hmm. so important because we also reviewed an article from Bruce Perry in which he talked about the prime directives mm-hmm. being one of procreation and community. And we talked about that a lot. Yes, we did. <laughs> and here is another completely different, different perspective that says actually one of the prime directives. And he even in the paragraph before talks about how it is equivalent to lower animals preservation of life. life. That yeah. the, the human organism does not differentiate almost right. between preservation of life and preservation of selfhood. That's right. Yeah. That if I, if I don't feel myself as a self, then I cease to exist. That's right. Mm-hmm. Which is just like so, it, it's so important to get. Yes, it's fundamental. Yeah. Because then that illuminates how shame enters the picture. Well, and right. I think honestly it is where all of our symptomology comes from. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So, so to, yeah. Okay. So I have this phrase in my head. When you ask clients, because I tend in the somatic direction, one of the kinds of questions that I ask clients a lot is when we're talking about an emotion of felt sense like shame, I'll ask them, so what words go with that? Or what's kind of the image or the picture that goes with that felt sense that describes that? And invariably in this particular culture, we use the phrase, well, I, it's like I want to crawl into a hole and disappear. Yeah. Right? That That is a kind of colloquialism that we've all attached to the idea of shame. And I remember a client saying that to me, and then Bromberg comes along and really illuminates this, is that fear and shame always hang out together. That's right. Mm-hmm. They are always um, happening almost at the same time. And when you think about any other organism – if it was to crawl into a hole and try to disappear, the reason is fear. Mm-hmm. Like that is a fear response. The desire to be small and to d- disappear is the mammalian life yeah. preservation activity yes. of anything that feels like it's about to be overwhelmed by something larger than itself. And so for the human organism, that is what shame feels like to us. It feels like tremendous, overwhelming fear. And then the question is fear of what? And Bromberg comes along and says, fear of loss of selfhood. Self-annihilation. Yeah. yeah. And that makes so much sense in the, the way that we kind of usually understand shame. Shame is when I feel badly about myself. Well, that's true. But it's when I am experiencing um, a moment of expecting rejection or actually experiencing rejection from another. And being rejected, that feeling is somebody is rejecting who I am. My selfhood is now yeah. in question. That's right. And that is what produces that fear response. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And can I nuance that a little bit? Yes, please. That someone has rejected mm. and the expectation is that, or the objectification is that the other I am with in the present is doing the same thing. Is mm-hmm. going to do the same yeah. thing. Almost like the rejection is inevitable. Whether yeah. it's happening for real or if it's happening yet, yeah. the expectation of it is mm-hmm. enough to send us into that. Well, and that's state. where the title of the article comes from. Something wicked this, this way, way comes, comes is yeah. an anticipatory response. By the pricking of my thumb. That's right. Yes. yes. That is the, the anticipation of rejection mm-hmm. is a, it, it is an adaptive response. Right. It is to shield oneself away from what they're certain will happen not could happen but will happen it's an absolutism and you Mm. hear clients say things like if you really knew me yeah you wouldn't blah blah blah." yeah or i'm afraid if you really knew me yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so and that 
one of the images I have, because I want to return back to self-continuity, mm-hmm. because this mm-hmm. is like the fragmenting of mm-hmm. um, Is this where you want to jump the into self. the three Cs? Um, or do you want to wait? Yes. I just want to make sure my brain is not... No, I want you to come off. <laughs> I want you to come off this image because okay. what I have is that um, a somewhat paradoxical mm. um, interpretation of this process in the humans, where I think of like the NASA launch of a spacecraft, uh-huh. mm. in which eventually there's going to come a part where, in order to complete the mission, they need to launch off other parts of the ship. Yeah. So they shoot off with with all. A hole, uh-huh. and then they get to a place in the stratosphere, stratosphere. where yeah. then they they split off. Yeah, and there's yeah. parts that fall off. Yes, and they keep Isn't going. That where the word jettison comes from? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah to jettison yeah. aspects of yeah. Yeah, and so then the and it's because that part isn't seen as um, if they stay together, the mission will fail. Yes, because it needs to lose weight in order to keep the speed and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yes. So as the self, we go through, as a self, we go through life and there are these experiences in which we have a very real um, somatic experience of the world Hmm. and it is deemed or reflected by another person as invalid, um, not true, um, maybe even demonized or mm-hmm. objectified. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a threat and in to that others. way, yeah. the self has to make a very adaptive decision. Mm. That experience is very real, but yeah. it can't feel it. Yes. And so you have to jettison or fragment that part of the self off. In order to maintain continuity. continuity. Self-continuity. Self. Yes. That's right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And what's really interesting is then where I think shame comes in is the impending like comeback of that part Mm. when the person somatically feels that part approaching the self yeah and saying oh remember us or oh we have something to say about the present because yeah we had another part had this experience uh, an experience that felt like this before can we come and it feels like death Yes. To the self to reintegrate that part or to even let the part come and be a part of the rest of the self. So I would love to take everything that you just said and put it in story form of mm-hmm. a real human. And mm-hmm. I don't have one in mind. I'm just saying I would like to do that. Mm. <laughs> so I'm curious, like, if you could, you know, think about kind of the story arc of what you just said. You know, this this aspect of self that um, experienced shame was jettisoned in order to preserve that self-continuity. What what kinds of experiences, certainly um, things that we traditionally would shame in our society. So inappropriate sexual experience, that's an easy one. I have to reject that part of myself. Um, if someone told me, literally, I should be ashamed of myself, that's going to be a good candidate for that. Mm. But so th- those we're more familiar with. So I'm interested in when does the threat of reintegration usually show up in somebody's life? Hmm. I think it's in uh, implicit, subtle ways. Like I'm, what came to my mind was like a dismissive client okay. that um, has played the diffusing role in the family mm. and has therefore um, cut off the parts of the self that are 
um, validating to their own experience. And so as a therapist, asking that person, what are, what are you feeling? How are you experiencing me? Mm. Or how are you experiencing yourself? Talk about these things that make you angry or sad. That right there is asking the self to open up to these parts that in previous context, it would have been maladaptive and yes, an impending doom on the self if they would have had that part. So yeah. then I'm, I am, the system is probably going to anticipate the same sort of shame. Whatever reaction they had initially, they're going to anticipate. Yeah. Or from their the family unit. Yeah. Or, yeah, exactly. Or another had towards them. Right. Yeah. Um, right. I just, just today had a, client um very one of the most left brain dismissive orientations that i've ever sat with Mm. um as if emotion was a choice Hmm. that is that would be convenient that is the point of disintegration this person Mm. is at that i can choose to have emotion or i can choose to not have emotion but it is before me always as a binary switch that i can make Mm -hmm. because their mother was so um hyper vigilant and preoccupied with their own narcissism mm-hmm. that to have an emotion would only excite and further destabilize the system right so those parts became disintegrated mm-hmm. and shut off of any emotion at all it doesn't matter happy could be taken a, the wrong way sadness could be taken the wrong way fear could be taken the wrong way anger mm-hmm. it doesn't matter any of them so i just had to you know they just had to live in this you know, don't smile outwardly, but but don't look sad either. So just just neutral. have a, a face that's neutral but ambivalent. Right, right. And that's the way they sit across from me. And so even in talking about some of the most intense stories of their life, their face doesn't change. Wow. And to point at those pieces of saying, what's it like to talk this way with me now and to see me reacting this way? They'll say, uncomfortable. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. And that is exactly what their body is making that adaptive choice to recognize the disintegration and the dissociation and to say, this is what got us in trouble before the very thing that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that way, and, and there's like an interesting split in the, the personality there Yeah, in that it is, it is still feeling that. Yes. Somatically. Uncomfortable. Yeah. But it is chopping off the body in a sense. Yes. And going just purely with the heady interpretation of, well, I'm just un- I'm uncomfortable. Yes. But to me, somatically, I would interpret that as I am uncomfortable with the effort that I am having to exert to repress and suppress the affect that is rising up within me. What's interesting is it feels like, and this is just my body listening to that space, what they're saying is it's uncomfortable to be confronted mm-hmm. with my Awareness. invitation yeah. for them to be emotional. Yeah, yeah. That's what they're saying is uncomfortable. They're not even actually in a space of experiencing the affect yet. No. They're just like, I don't like the way you're looking at me. Like, you're <laughs> The inviting... fact that you're even aware yes. that there might be an emotion not back good. there somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm failing. Yeah. Not good. Yeah. yeah. And because you're suggesting yes. that a part of them is present when they interpret that part as a not me. Yes, it can't be. That's not me. Yeah, I'm not that way. I can't be that. Right. 
it feels like a life threat. Yes, exactly. Because it's a self-threat. Yes. To admit that. Yes, and it's no surprise that in each of those moments, memories of mom start coming up. Mm. Memories of mom, memories of mom, memories of mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the body remembers, for sure. Which, like, also illuminates the um, idea of, like, how clients, how we have clients that can um, be content in this oh yeah somewhat content i would argue otherwise they wouldn't come to therapy but content in their limited selfhood yes and even justify because and this is something i love talking about with clients the space that you are allowed to occupy becomes ever increasingly more and more narrow but you're still allowed to occupy it the self still exists it's still cohesive coherent and continuous it's mm-hmm. still there in the smallest space, though, but it's still there. I'm allowed to exist in this tiny crack. I may not be this big, vibrant personality and self that you want me to be, but I survived. Mm-hmm. I'm still me. So I'm immediately thinking about what does an experience of losing self look like, feel like? How is that experienced by a human? Is my question exciting you, Caleb? Stolero. <laughs> like watching uh, a serious nostril flare thing Oh, over you just here. mentioned Stolero. Um, I'm <laughs> going to default to Bridger because... You're on a train to nowhere. Yeah. The loss of self... And psychoanalysts describe this in my opinion the best of any writers out there the loss of self feels like the loss of reality death complete annihilation and stolero bob stolero one of the just an amazing analyst and kind of pioneers in the field of intersubjectivity um, tells a story of when he lost his wife and he had a friend another analyst say to him it's as if you're on a train to nowhere. But that that to me strikes me as um, not the loss of self, but the integration of self. It holds this. And that's what he says of the, the emotional dwelling that's made there can be. But that on that train, you don't know where you're going. Yeah. So if it is in a and maybe this is where we want to talk about the sub symbolic. But it, if it is left in the unwitnessed yes um parts of yourself then it then it feels like death still so to be lost as a self-state that is just an affect in which when it starts to emerge in you it feels terrifying you want to run away from it Mm -hmm. that's what i think a loss of self yeah would feel like so ready for transpersonal left turn Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The way that people describe the therapeutic and healing experience of deep spiritual realities is identical to what you guys just said. Death to self. Yeah. Ego death. That's right. Right. Loss of self. But when they speak of it, it's with this sense of profound pleasure and awe. Euphoria. Euphoria. So... Then my brain says, well, what's the difference? Because clearly <laughs> one feels good and the other feels real bad. 
right? But, okay, so hold that thought, Caleb. Caleb's over there shaking his head. You can't hear that, so I'm going to narrate what's happening. That's why we need cameras. Go to Patreon. Right. So, So here's what I want to add into the mix, and then I want you to talk. To me, that feels similar to polyvagal theory's distinction between immobilization with and without fear. An ego death in a fearless state is the most profoundly beautiful and freeing thing a human organism can experience. An ego death in fear is the worst experience. That is self-annihilation that feels like we cannot return from that. So once again, the shame state mediated by fear, the presence or absence of fear becomes essential to understanding how we experience these things. Mm -hmm. Our own sense of self with fear and without fear is everything. Okay, now now you talk. Well, I I had two thoughts emerge. Like one of them was more of a question about, um, I wonder if the 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 uh, the going beyond death i wonder if it is impossible without others like you have to have an other a witnesser or a witness um an experience somebody who goes beyond the self which you are and kind of ushers you you're talking about the guide the guide yeah you you mean in a deep spiritual experience that usually I mean even in in the idea of like selfhood and yeah. like well and that's that is a very interesting idea I don't it, want us to go down well this it brings up the far. idea that the trauma is not the event that it's yes. being no. alone yes, yes exactly yes. and that's what Stoller wrote and having to nobody to partner with you yes in the the articulation of what just happened to me someone yeah. help me make sense of well what that's just what happened to Stolero me. defines trauma as intolerable affect with no attunement yeah intolerable affect with no attunement yeah, yeah so in so the absence fear, of attunement fear is not the only mediating factor aloneness isolation is isolation which Shame. is in the affective circuitry yes mm-hmm. yeah yes and this is where again primary origination of shame comes from right. primary yeah. process my, so what was the second thought? my second thought is that you talked about one experience of death being like totally good, good. Mm-hmm. and i think I want to be careful about that because I don't think good and death bad. is ever good or bad. Um, or yeah, I I don't even like the binary. I don't think death ever feels. There is an element in which death has to, I think, always feel um, terrifying. Yes. Before it feels integrating. So maybe nuanced words would be the experience of ego death without fear in those states of euphoria that people talk about, it's not so much good, but it's expansive and actualizing freeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Freeing because you go beyond. Right. Yeah. Versus yeah. ego death with fear is a constriction and mm-hmm. a, a tightening. It's almost like your whole self implodes on itself and you disappear into a pinpoint of nothingness. Yeah. Whereas the converse is this huge, expansive, you know, myself is dissolved into something so much greater than me, but my, they still, I think the difference is, is that you still sense yourself. It's just so much bigger than you ever thought it was, 
but you never really lose track of of self in the way that that ego death with fear brings mm-hmm. um you don't feel annihilated in that space you feel expanded mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah so i, I want to do something now and we're going to zoom out again to zoom back into the article this is something that i think admittedly psychoanalysts don't pay much attention to which is practical application this is all very intricate and deep thought conversation about shame, dissociation, mm-hmm. interpsychic work, uh, primary, secondary, tertiary processes. So I want us to like come back out for the listener of like, what does this matter? Mm-hmm. In and yeah. I hated that question for the longest time, but it is useful. In uh, thank you, Berger. Yes, it is. I freaking hate that question, honestly, but it's it's great for the listener. I yeah. think of why is this. What? But I guess it's great for the listeners. Yes. We're going to go ahead and talk about it. Yes, because I would be content. We have a secret podcast where we don't ever ask that question, and it's my favorite thing. Well, okay. I I want to say something, though. You are deeply interested in the practical. It's just not as fun for you to talk about the practical as it is to talk about the theoretical. Yes. We believe wholeheartedly in, in the, the application yes. of the practical. So I want us all to be challenged with the idea of what does this matter? This article, Bromberg, what does it matter to a clinician who is doing treatment once a week with a client for 50 minutes. Yeah. I think it has everything to do. And to me, I could not do therapy without it. Absolutely. But I want us to talk about why, and then maybe that can zoom us back into the article. Okay. Uh, Yeah. I think one of the thoughts I had based off of this article and Bromberg's idea that um, shame is this experience of... um, dissociative self-states yeah and the almost intrusiveness of a self-state on on the accepted me Mm -hmm. that doesn't want those other self-states to intrude one of the things i was thinking of is the myth of the idea that there is a conflict free resolution of shame yeah and Mm -hmm. simply saying the words you can say whatever you want you can be whoever you want to me as your therapist i'm not going to judge you the words are not good enough right because their shame and dissociated self-states are in the sub-symbolic yes. which is in the affective it's not cognitive yeah right it, it it has narrative to explain why that self-state is dissociated maybe or why the self is better yeah. without it that probably self-state. has memories of where that distinction was justified oh, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 but It's not like that doesn't matter because the second as a clinician, I start uttering some things like you. So you feel hopeless. Yeah. That can be so activating and I can see clients drop out Mm -hmm. because I've just suggested a a part of them that I am proposing as a part of them, like their Their self. self. And that is a dissociated self state. Yeah. I can't be hopeless. I can't. No. And so just me saying you can be whatever you want, that doesn't, that's a, it's a myth that that. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. That that's like a way to just relieve shame. Yes. There's no shame. Well, and I think that that has to do like, once again, the practical application is the shortcomings of a tertiary approach from a therapist, right? Heck yeah. So if I come at it from this cognitive approach and say, well, cognitively, doesn't it make sense that you in this room with me, a therapist that you pay to just be here for you could say whatever you want? 
well, sure, that makes logical sense. So why can't they do it? And, you know, Bromberg talks about uh, re-understanding what we mean when we say resistance, right? <laughs> and their, their uh, struggle, the client's struggle of working within the transference, which is a psychoanalytic thing. Um, but whatever modality we're using, a client struggle to really engage with whatever modality we're trying to use if we understand it not as resistance but as a inability not chosen but a biological physiological inability to tolerate the affect state associated that's right with the material that we are trying to activate in their system is super relevant yes mm-hmm. so if i if i am trying to activate the client around a particular issue let's say uh easy example exploring um a client's anger towards her parents for them rejecting her sexuality her entire life and shaming her with religious abuse Mm -hmm. okay Uh, that's like all of my clients so (laughs) that's an easy example there's a lot of them right so when i when i make these activating statements of man if i was in that situation i would feel really really mad at your mom for saying that that's me activating and suggesting to the system hey, you could move into anger right now and activate your rage circuitry. And the physiological experience of rage has been dissociated away and so shamed that everything in them is going, I cannot feel that. Mm -hmm. It's not that I don't cognitively agree with you, therapist. Yes. I know you're right. And they'll even say that to us. Yes. I know you're right. But. But I can't feel it. What they're saying, they're, they're being literal. They're literally in unable to tolerate that affect state and what does dissociation does is it's not that the the rage rises and they make this cognitive choice of oh i shouldn't be mad at my parents and therefore i'm going to suppress my rage it's that there is not a physiological connection to that rage in their system because previously it has been so dissociated away because it was perceived as dangerous yes. that that circuitry is no longer connected. Dangerous and traumatic. Yes. It would be traumatic mm-hmm. to embody or to experience that. Yeah. I could not make sense of myself in my world if this rage was present and felt in my body. Therefore, I will dissociate it away and be a self without rage. And that is incredibly practical because every time we're activating a a client system around a particular issue, there needs to be a part of us asking, can they tolerate feeling this today? Do they, are they in a space where they have, you know, dipped their toe enough that we have brought together the circuitry that they can tolerate even a tiny bit of that affect state and, and then trust me enough to do it in front of me because you'll you'll hear clients say well, well i can cry but i have to be alone what are yeah. they saying they're saying that that self-state is only allowed when nobody else is present the yeah. minute that another human organism is present it represents the threat of rejection and that dissociated um you know part is going to now disappear into the ether and they cannot access it yes right and if we don't understand that we're thinking well if they can cry alone then they can cry in front of another. no they not can't even close they cannot tolerate that affect yeah. state in the presence of another i just want to read this quote because it's exactly what we're talking about mm-hmm. here that this process right here this inability to connect with that in the presence of the other Uh, Bromberg talks about it being directly tied to the person's reliance on dissociation as a means of foreclosing potentially traumatic encounters with the mind of a needed other, that's you as the therapist, in the here and now, encounters that could threaten to trigger affective hyperarousal, including shame, 
without hope of regulating the affect through the relationship itself. Yeah. That is what Bromberg is talking about right alongside what we're describing now. Right. Well, and, you know, I highlight that, highlighted that portion to Bridger because I think it um, connects to something that we, you know, talk about all the time at Beyond Healing and have talked about on this, con- on this podcast about attachment. Mm-hmm. And this really, really challenging presentation, particularly with clients that have a disorganized attachment style of the need and the threat are held within one body, right? So yes. I need my mother, I need her love, but she's also super scary and mean to me. And maybe the biggest <laughs> threat I've ever known. Yeah. And so, you know, all all of it is wrapped up into one being. And if, if that is present in their system, then we show up as therapist and encapsulate that entire, yeah, that entire experience for them. And so even when we're doing our best to offer unconditional positive regard and safety and all of that, and, and trying to demonstrate that their whole system is saying, because not even though, but because you are offering me connection, I am terrified of you. Like that is so relevant for yes. what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that has not, been the self i've been allowed to inhabit right ever right yeah and i've learned that actually to do so would mean i'm vulnerable to annihilation mm-hmm. yeah some discontinuity will... yes. of the self yes mm-hmm. somebody will reject me and in that rejection i will die yeah yeah and so, this is not like over dramatized language no that is, that is no. physiological biological language yes exactly yeah. which is to say you know i can just empathize with some therapist saying like who is actually thinking these thoughts they're, of they're not if I'm if I am that version of myself I will die. Right. They're not thinking that. Their reptilian and mammalian brain are thinking that. Right. And in so doing, organizing the brain and the way it develops around avoiding that very way of being in the world. Yeah. Which I think like that's where, you know, we talk about affective and cognitive and the yeah. primary, secondary, tertiary, you know, psychoanalyst would say that like these experiences of dissociation are in the sub-symbolic realms. Yes. And why therapists need to know this yes. and talk this way is because it could be the most healing experience. To put language to that. It could, it could be the compass experience, the ref- mm. referential experience for the client to say, you've not been allowed to inhabit this space with this experience. And to say that and to bring it into the symbolic, to bring it into the explicit realm yeah. of the the dyadic relationship. Yeah, the tertiary process. Yeah. 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 That could that could be the thing that allows them to be like, holy crap, you're right. Mm. And to then begin to accept accept that self state. Well, I think it's in the it is in the conscious acknowledgement within the therapeutic dyad of that felt reality. And then comes the invitation to integrate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that you can't assume that one leads to the other. Because I've had clients, I'll say that, and they're just like staring back at me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and also the, the right brain to right brain implicit communication yes. of how you say that. Yes. If you say that in a way that is both like empathetic and like powerful. Yes. In a way that like that, that doesn't scare me. Yes. I, like that's okay that that's a reality for you that is implicitly communicating to them like you're different right this is a disconfirming experience well and i think you know one of the ways that we work with this as therapists you know through ego state work and other modalities is 
way before that self-state is integrated, we as the therapist, you know, the image that I have, it's almost like I'm waving at those parts from far, far away and saying, I see you over there. Don't rush, right? Just, just because I see you doesn't mean that you have to do anything with that. It's activating enough to those disintegrated, dissociated self-states for us to be aware of them. The minute that they actually have someone look them in the eye and say, I see you, whoa, that is an invitation to integration that is super activating to their system. Yeah. And we have to be really, really careful about how much do we speak directly to those parts just because we know that we're, they're there. And so sometimes we end up in this kind of interesting limbo space with clients where we're kind of winking at them going, I see you, but we're not going to talk about it yet because I know, I know that that's too much. So we're going to both know that we know for a little while and I'm okay with that. You take as much time as you need. Um, one of the kind of the analogies that I think is helpful with this is when you get, um, a new cat and you bring it into your home <laughs> Yeah, and it's in its crate there's this moment where you're sitting on the couch and the crate's over in the corner. And if you turn and look at the cat, it's going to go straight back into its crate, right? But if you hold real still and you wait, it'll poke its head out and then come and then back in and then poke its head out. And it's this funny little dance, but you can't make too much eye contact and no sudden movements. Otherwise straight back into the crate. Yeah. But if we sit still, the cat knows that we know that it's there, right? It's not dumb. But there's something about the energy of that space of, I, I see you, I know that you're there, but I am not demanding interaction yet. Mm -hmm. I'm not demanding that you show up in any particular way. I am just going to be in this space with you where you get to investigate from a very far away place, am I even open to being present here? And if we can be really, really patient in that space and work very somatically and not rush into cognition, that those parts of self can slowly uh, reintegrate in a much more gentle way. If we come at them with words and cognition and ideas, it feels like demands. It's like walking up to the cat's crate and yelling at it to come out. It's not going to work. You're scared, cat. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> I see you in there and you're terrified. Let me help you, right? Like, no, that's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Your we, tone is all wrong. Yeah, yes, one. exactly. <laughs> like, seriously, put a little pile of treats and go sit on the couch and be quiet, yeah. right? But I, I think that part of what happens for therapists is that the idea of sitting in that very quiet space with clients and feeling the affective discomfort of the whole moment and staying silent for a long time, we as therapists do not tolerate that affect state very well because it triggers our own shame around not doing enough, not saying enough. And so our shame starts to collude with their shame and all cats stay in their crates. <laughs> it's nice. an incompatible self-state yes. of the counselor oh, like, to yes. be inefficient oh. and Quiet. like unaware mm -hmm. or in a zone of unknowing mm -hmm. yeah i can't feel like i don't know what's going on right. yeah but oh that's so important you guys yeah to just be able to sit very still very quiet very um open mm, yeah 
without any fancy words or answers and just let that space do what it can do. That is really hard for us. Really, really hard for us. When Bromberg even says, and I think this is maybe a good place to go into the idea of enactments, Mm -hmm. Bromberg has like this little parenthetical where he says, often therapists miss enactments. Yeah. Yeah. Meaning they miss these times where you get into this sub-symbolic dialogue or implicit dialogue with the client where we're talking about something and content, but we're processing something with our bodies. Right. And the way we are communicating about the content is doing more than we're aware of. And he actually says, like, I often miss that. Mm -hmm. And on the off chance that I get it right and I do recognize it, that's where therapy happens. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And he he just admits it. And psychoanalysts, I think, are very open to that forthcoming mm-hmm. with it mm-hmm. even yeah yeah there's that a we're kind gonna, of humility because we're gonna get in that transparent transference counter-transference mm-hmm. enactment and it's gonna kind of yeah go south sometimes. i'll be distracted by it yeah i'll be taken i'll with collude it. Uh-huh. or yeah or my own you know disintegrated self states they're gonna miss it because mm-hmm. i can't allow that part of me to be present and so yeah yeah and that's the space that we're negotiating all the, all time, the time in our lived experience yeah. is this moment of you catch a mirror and you say whoa that's not me i can't do that and we turn away from <laughs> is it is that what i look or, like oh yeah God. <laughs> exactly or we turn to face it yeah. because the invitation we feel is is safe enough mm-hmm. but not too safe mm-hmm. yeah which is one of his phrases yes. in the article safe which but is not lovely. too safe safe yeah. enough but not too safe yeah and i i like that idea of using ourself as one of the main tools of therapy means that working with our own dissociated self states in therapy with our clients invites them to do the same and owning moments of, um, you know, saying things to our clients like, yeah, there's this part of me that really just feels drawn to sit and be quiet with you today because my body feels like that's what needs to happen. Yeah. But then there's this other part of me that kind of feels compelled to talk because I worry that you would feel like we're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's therapy. Like to, to just say that as the therapist of like, here's what's happening in my body. Yeah. Here's what I'm feeling in the space between us. What are you feeling? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's this very gentle and humble in- invitation of, hey, if I'm in this state of internal conflict, you might be too. And that, um, that modeling is a way that we can start to work with this in a way that doesn't feel like a confrontation, but still invites conflict to be present. Yeah. I, oh, he has this quote, <laughs> this like block quote that I think is like so in line with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I just want to read it because it's in the classic analytical way. It's just, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, so he talks about this therapeutic space where enactments occur Mm -hmm. and where you do give your subjective experience Mm -hmm. as the therapist. He says, uh, this meaning the space, the therapeutic space for thinking between and about the patient and the analyst, a space uniquely relational and still uniquely individual, a space belonging to neither person alone and yet belonging to both and to each a twilight space in which the quote-unquote impossible becomes possible, a space in which incompatible selves, each awake to its own truth 
and can dream the reality of the other without risk to its own integrity. How is this phenomenon possible? My answer, Bromberg's answer, is that the reciprocal process of active involvement with the states of mind of the other allows a patient's here and now perception of self to share consciousness with the experiences of incompatible self-narratives that were formally dissociated. Yeah. Just dang. So good. So good. Excellent. So he alludes to this, but there's a lot of other research that is, you know, from other areas of our field, not psychoanalytic, but attachment and neuroscience where it talks about the mother's ability to attune and the definition of attunement in that sense is to imagine and embody the experience of the infant and be responsive because the infant does not have language and therefore the only communication is the mother's ability to embody and intuit what is happening in the infant's body. The, the activity of mirror neurons in that attunement back and forth between mother and infant is absolutely essential to the formation and development of that infant's self-concept. When we don't have attunement and the mirroring of, you know, well, yes, we understand mirroring is kind of a relational concept, but it's also this very neurobiological concept. Um, without the activation of the mirror neurons between mother and infant, the infant does not know who it is. And when that continues throughout its lifetime, what is happening is exactly what Bromberg is, is referring to of we get these dissociated elements of self because I can't feel who I am without the mirroring of another. I can't mm. know myself outside of relationship because we are mammals. And without that attunement and that, that mirroring, um, I can't see who I am. I cannot accept and experience any aspect of myself that has not been mirrored back to me by another. And because that so rarely is done perfectly, if ever, by a mother, later in life we have the opportunity to recreate that attunement in other relationships. It's never as effective and efficient as it would be in infancy. But I think what you just read, Caleb, is this idea that if we know how to work and can tolerate working in that intersubjective space with our clients, we are giving them the opportunity to see themselves through our eyes for the first time. And because of that, they get to reintegrate and meet themselves, their whole self, for the first time. Mm. And if we are creating a space to do that, I don't really care what else we're doing. Like, that's everything mm -hmm. as far as therapy goes. Yeah. yeah. And that doesn't start with cognition. <laughs> like, just to no. get back to it. Like, it starts with the embodied relationality yes. of yeah. the moment where... Yeah. yeah, and I feel like we just need to say nothing starts with cognition. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. that's where other we... than headaches sometimes. Just kidding. Well, yeah, that's very true. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, that is an interesting point. Maybe there's one exception. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's where we get to, and that's where there's like a nonlinearity and balance and nuance. But that's not where it starts. It starts in, you know, we're gonna have an honest dialogue about what happened this week that was dysregulating. And how that dysregulates you right now to talk about it and how I'm experiencing your dysregulation. And then we're going to talk about that. We're going to have a very process-oriented session. Yeah. And one of the things that does, like in SIP, we talk about the, the looping from the mm -hmm. right hemisphere implicit self mm -hmm. over into the narrative self. Yeah. And we don't, clients may want to go left or right. They often do. They often do. 
but we want to situate the therapeutic alliance in a way that opens up to, look, we're going to go right. We're going to engage our bodies in such a way where then we're going to get to a place where you're going to experience a new part of your quote unquote body or self. And then we're going to make sense of that. Yeah. And that we talk about disconfirming experiences a lot and they, and, um, Bromberg talks about it as safe surprises. Yes. Which I love so much. The disconfirming experience is the visceral activation of a encounter, an enactment, where that mirror moment happens, mm-hmm. where we see the mirror and this dissociated part of self that was deemed shameable is shown. And instead of the shame ensuing, and the trauma becoming real again, the therapeutic relationship has the tolerance within it to integrate that mm-hmm. part back into self to say that part of you isn't shame worthy. It's you. Mm. Yeah. That part doesn't mean that the rest of you discontinues. That's right. Mm-hmm. It can coexist. Yes. That's beautiful. The sirens in the background are <laughs> adding to the ambiance. Yes. So we need I, to wrap this up. I know. Soon. And so I'm going to offer something oh, that these is a different might resource. Be coming. Oh, they're coming right here for us. Just kidding. We're okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so some of you, as you're listening to this, you may continue to be craving the practical. Yes. Right. And this idea of, okay, this sounds really important. What the heck does this yeah. look like These in a therapy session? These three people are talking very passionately yes. about this. Yeah. And, and we really do practice therapy this way, guys. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what, we practice life this way. It's a fascinating way to live. Um, so I'll share a couple of things that I feel like have been really, really important in just kind of my understanding of like, how do I ground this in reality? Like, what are the words that actually need to come out of my mouth? What do I do with my body? Like, what the heck are we doing here? I love ending podcasts this way. Yes. Yeah. So, so I'm going to offer a totally different resource that we haven't talked about yet. It is this little tiny book that is really old and simple and important. You know where I'm going? I do know. Yeah. So it's called Focusing. Yes. By Eugene Gendlin. G-E-N-D. Uh, well, I'm going to spell it wrong. Hold L-I-N. On. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Um, so that little book, the reason why I'm bringing it up, and I'm checking spelling because I want to, yeah. Eugene T. Gendlin. G-E-N-D-L-I-N. And you can get it on Amazon for barely any money. You can get it on Audible and listen to it. I would it's get like, it on Audible. Yeah. It's like two hours long. You guys, it's super fast. Um But what I really like about it is that it is a very practical and step-by-step embodied approach to how we begin to interact with the felt sense of our lives rather than the cognition that try to explain our lives to us. He is so simple and practical in the way that he approaches this. Um, but in all of my understanding about what good somatic therapy is, what it means to process trauma, all of the different things that I've encountered, it is a super lovely encapsulation of what do we actually do as a human trying to live in this very inner subjective, um, felt sense way rather than constantly leading with our prefrontal cortex, but still acknowledging that we have a prefrontal cortex and it's neat and we want to continue to use it because it has a lot of tools, right? So this little book walks you through step by step and 
gives really great examples. And my recommendation is listen to it once and then come back and listen to it again and work along with him um, Mm. and actually practice this with you as a human being. And then the third time, think about your clients. Because if we can first embody it and have a somatic experience ourselves of what does this feel like, it becomes really obvious how that translates into therapy. Because he's not actually talking about um, how to do this as a therapist. He's talking to humans about how to do this with your own body. But he leads off with this research of when they look at, regardless of modality, what therapists are getting good results and what therapists are not total cross-section of modalities doesn't matter what we're doing it's this element the ability to focus in on the moment by moment here and now somatic experience of whatever material we're working with if we don't do that nothing shifts the process yes it's the process right here in this moment of really being with whatever material we're working with Um, so that is a huge plug for this lovely little book Um, and if you're craving the practical go to Eugene Genlin, a little book called Focusing. Yeah. You guys have any wrap-up thoughts? I think my one practical would be one of the things that Bromberg has just illuminated to me, and this is also Bridger and I, like, fawn over um, Stolero yeah. and, and, and all fond, of his work. that's a good word. Yeah. <laughs> um, Follow over yourselves, yes. Love. Yeah. <laughs> um, deeply. Um <laughs> Keep going. Is the, <laughs> is the idea of like being able to like sit so compassionately mm. in the dissociative gap with a client and to sit and to utter the thing that has felt unutterable to yes. them. Yes. And to do it in such like a compassionate, confident way. Yeah. Like that brings about the healing in the process. Right. right. And I want to add to that 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 utterance of the unutterable for the therapist doing that it is this very slow gentle articulation of what your body as a therapist is feeling in that moment you should not feel like your cognitive brain is hustling to come up with an answer it is one of those moments where the truth just bubbles up from in you and the words are there and there is this felt sense of resonance between the words in your own body. And your body knows that what you're saying is true. And when we speak that way, the client's body knows yeah. that it's true. And so when we say in that way, this might be one of the first times that it has ever been safe for you to feel what you're feeling right now. Yes. When we say that kind of thing to our client and our body is resonating with the truth of that and their body is too that is when the work is happening. Those disintegrated self-states can come home. And that, to me, is the takeaway um, in one of the final pages. He just has this small quote from himself in an earlier writing, which is another thing analysts do, which I love. Quote themselves? Yeah. Yes, great. (laughs) He says, the goal is for patient and analyst to stand together in the spaces between realities and move safely, but not completely safely, back and forth across that line. Mm. That line between we're going right up to the space where in the past you were shown inevitable annihilation and we're just going to sit here Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. completely acknowledging one another in the Mm -hmm. space. And that's what we're doing today. Yeah. And even as you say that is like the feeling I have when I say that to a client, it's utterly holy. 
Yes. Yeah. It's Super it's a sacred reverent, work. sacred moment of just like, I know what I'm saying is both terrifying and the most compassionate thing I could say mm-hmm. to you right now. Mm-hmm. And that is like powerful as a mm-hmm. as a clinician to, yeah. to be there. Well, and he, sorry, I have to read another one. So, uh, <laughs> he so says, <laughs> the highest degree of this I call astonishment. Mm-hmm. The subordinate mm-hmm. degrees are awe, reverence, and respect. Yeah. Distinguished from pleasure. Mm-hmm. I feel that. Awe, yeah. reverence, and respect. Yeah. And I think clinicians know that feeling. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Those enter, are our favorite moments. Yes, when you yeah. enter that space of seeing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So going along with that analogy that you gave Bridger, we take them right up to that edge. There's an analogy that I use with all of my clients when we're doing trauma work, which is talking about our relationship with the cliff, Mm -hmm. right? And their fear of jumping off the cliff and what that's going to be like. And what I say to them is I will sit with you at the edge of the cliff for as long as we need to, and I will never push you over. And I had a client one time and this was her language, which gosh, I wish I had thought of it because it was really cool. Um, (laughs) As we're sitting there on the edge of the cliff and, you know, looking over the edge and talking about what's down there at the very end of the session and the way that clients do where they like wait till the last second to say the coolest thing ever or the worst thing ever. Sometimes she (laughs) says, yeah, she says something along the lines of, you know, it's not as terrifying to sit here when I'm kind of starting to believe that maybe I could just fly. And it was just this lovely moment because what she was experiencing in her body was the buoyancy and the safety of the relationship in that space. And then it's just not as scary to imagine going over the edge. And I could go there and come back and go there and come back. And that ability to tolerate what's down there happens when they really feel that sense of, I'm not going to get lost down there. There's always a way to come back. And that... I feel like was just such a good image of that is what we're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Feels like a good spot to be done if you guys are. I just had Lord of the Rings come to my mind. <laughs> so. I just had Interstellar come to my mind. So. <laughs> oh, movie time. <laughs> nice. High five. So, uh, yes, I'm pleased with that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed talking. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com slash media. Also, subscribe to our Patreon to support us at patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. Find all episodes on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.